You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him. So one person we never talk about ever is John the Baptist. Uh, When you think about John the Baptist, if you know who that is, if you know your Bible, uh, he's a really significant person in the Bible. I mean, think about it. He's the forerunner to Christ. He prepares the way for the Messiah. And John is a -a one-of-a-kind prophet, truly. He stands in the middle of this era, bridging the old covenant to the new covenant. And no other prophet can say that they have performed that service. So John the Baptist, specifically, is really a unique contributor to the entire storyline of the Bible. He bridges, and he he really uh, keeps the story going, if you will. Yet, we never discuss him, ever. Why? Why is that? Why don't we ever talk about John the Baptist? He's so significant. The reason why we never talk about John the Baptist is because he didn't want to be talked about. See, John the Baptist was completely fine with advancing Christ instead of himself, and then dying, and being forgotten. Now that, what I just said, advancing Christ instead of himself, dying, and being forgotten, that is unheard of. We are not like that all, at all. What we want, okay, more than anything is to be important. And what we live for more than anything is ourselves. Most things in our life revolve around making us, keeping, and increasing our importance, and realizing and fulfilling our desires. So we go through life, what? Trying to be noticed, trying to be applauded, putting our desires and our comforts and our rights first. But John the Baptist doesn't do that at all. He really is this remarkable human being. And in fact, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says that there is none greater than John the Baptist. That's, that's quite a compliment. That's quite a commendation. There is none greater than John the Baptist in all the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. Why is John the Baptist so exemplary? Why is he commended like this? It's because he exemplifies a radical, (laughs) strange contentment. John the Baptist is the most content person you've ever met besides Jesus. So what's his secret? What does John the Baptist have that we don't have? That's what we're going to explore today. We're going to find out what the secret to contentment is today. All right? So before we study this passage and find out what the secret is, let's bow our heads and pray and ask the Lord to be with us and teach us. God, we confess and acknowledge right now that we are too concerned about ourselves and far too often. And we elevate our own thoughts. We elevate our own desires. We elevate our priorities above yours above your thoughts, above your desires, above what you want to see happen. And Lord, we we come to you confess these things. We know that we live for ourselves. We don't practice self-denial. We don't take up our cross daily to follow you. We don't um, repent and turn and embrace you and let go of our things. 
And so God, we come to you and ask that you would change us because we are so conditioned to be like this. We are so brainwashed to be like this, to be concerned for ourselves above all things. Lord, would you teach us, both in our minds and in our hearts, to let go of ourselves and what we think is important and our self-importance and seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. So God, teach us today through your servant, John the Baptist. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. So what is the secret to contentment? What's the secret? First, you have to know your limitations. And that's what John the Baptist shows us. Look at verse 22 to 24. Let's, let's begin this story. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Selim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. And then notice this here in this parentheses, for John had not yet been put in prison. And so I just want to actually talk about that parenthetical note that John makes real quick, and then we'll get into the story and then get into the sermon. John, if you didn't know, writes his gospel account far later than the other three gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have all been written, have been around for a while, and John comes and he writes his account of Jesus' life and ministry. And what John wants to do is present new information. He wants to present a a fresh, never-before-seen account of Jesus' life and ministry. So everything we've read so far in John's gospel and studied is is, uh, unique to John. It's not in the other gospels. And much of the content that we're going to see as we go through John's gospel is unique to John's gospel. But what he does here is he sort of timestamps things. He says this all is happening before John had been put in prison. And why John does that is because he wants to be sure his readers know his readers know that he's not creating rival content, uh, um, alternative content to the other three Gospels. He wants to be sure that they know that that the other three Gospels didn't get it wrong and John's trying to get it right, but he's presenting new information. And why that should encourage us and why that's important is because this shows us that the Gospels, what we have written about Jesus' life and ministry, his claims and his teachings— they are authentic and reliable. There is this hyper-awareness between all of the authors of the Bible, what the other authors of the Bible are writing, and an honor and a respect and an elevation given to the other writings of the other authors. So John doesn't want to uh, accidentally mislead anybody into thinking that the other Gospels are not reliable. They are. He's just here presenting new information. And so this should also give us reassurance that what we have when we come to the Gospels is a matter of fact, is matter of fact true? Is matter in fact, of fact reliable? There's compatibility across all of the Gospels. No contradictory, uh, no rival. Everything uh, we've seen in Jesus' ministry that's recorded in the Gospels and the other Gospels is unique to them, and this is unique to John. So that's just a note. But so far, what's the scene? What is the story? John the Baptist is baptizing in this rural region. And Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in a different region. And now let's keep reading the story. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. 
So what John's doing is he's administering this baptism of repentance, this opportunity for the Jewish people to rededicate their lives, to prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. That's John's practice of baptism. It's a practice of, of, of repentance for the Jewish people. But at this time, there's a ton of debate around baptism and the practice of baptism. So for example, if you were a radical adherent to the Torah and serious about holiness, you would add to the Torah. And what they added was, if you were really serious about holiness, you would bathe every day in cold water for the sake of purification. And so there's a lot of opinions and practices of baptism in this time. And more than likely, the debate that's occurring here between these parties is that John's baptism of repentance here is not traditional enough. It doesn't, it doesn't fit within their tradition. It's too rogue or something like that. So there's this debate that's happening over baptism, and it morphs into what? Into John's disciples taking issue with Jesus's ministry because it is expanding, while theirs is shrinking. Now slow down and think about this for a minute. John the Baptist is watching his crowd dwindle. John the Baptist is watching his influence decrease and fade away. John the Baptist is witnessing his importance fade and be redirected to Jesus. He was the talk of the town, but now who is? Jesus is. And to make it even more awkward or more difficult, his disciples put him on the spot and they say, do you notice this? Do you see what's happening? All of the crowds are leaving and going to him. And so what will John do? Will he defend himself? Will he assert himself? You see, it's hard to admit when you're losing, isn't it? It's hard to admit when somebody else is better. It's one thing to recognize that in your mind. It's one thing to be put on the spot and have to admit it out loud. <laughs> and that's what's happening to John here. And so what's he going to do? What will he say? John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given them from heaven. Even one thing. That, friends, is a massive perspective shift on life. Anything and everything that we have that's important our self-importance, our glory, anything good, anything excellent, anything that makes us look successful, anything in our life, it's not to our credit. It's not because of us. We're not in control of it. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is dispensed from God above. Nothing is earned. Everything is given. So I want to be clear what this means. Any level of importance that you have is not because of you. Any amount of success you have is not because of you. Any good thing in your life, it's not because of you. Now, when it comes to our success and our importance, those things usually get absorbed into our ego. But if what John says is true, that we, everything we have is given from heaven, 
If it's true, our success and importance should make no difference to our sense of self-worth. It should reflect nothing about ourselves in particular. When it comes to getting what we desire, getting what we want, those things are usually held tightly. We get territorial. We get protective. But if this is true, that it's all granted from heaven, then getting what we want should not become keeping what we want. Any success, importance, excellence, or fulfilled desire, it's on lease to you. You don't own it. And if this is the perspective that you adopt in life, it's a radical shift of perspective. If you adopt this perspective then you, like John the Baptist, you won't be defensive, you won't be disheartened when things change. Now, strangely, if you adopt this perspective, it's actually really, really comforting because you don't have to burn yourself out trying to impress everyone because ultimately, the deciding factor in your success is God, not you. So you can just be faithful and trust God with the outcome. You can do excellent work, exercise your gifting and your capacity, but leave the rest to God. And if you commit to this way of life, you will find that work becomes something that you enjoy rather than something that torments you. It becomes a craft that sharpens you as you master it. It becomes a creative process that you enjoy rather than a way that you establish yourself. And look, If you struggle with comparison or envy, seeing others succeed and excel or getting what you want, just remember this. They cannot take credit for their success any more than you can. Any good thing they have that you ultimately want is God's decision. It's not a reflection on you. So don't take it personally. Don't make it personal. Don't let insecurity tyrannize you because what you don't have is more a reflection of God's wisdom and God's choice than your ability. So be liberated from comparison and envy and insecurity. Good things that God gives, fulfilled desires that God gives, that's his idea. And he distributes that according to his will. It's not about you. It's about his wisdom and his choice. So, the secret to contentment, to being okay with what I have and not looking to what I don't have, being okay with letting go of self-importance, being okay with not being in control and not getting credit, the secret is knowing your limitations and accepting your limitations. Two things show that you're resisting this. Do you want to know two proofs, two evidences that show that you're not accepting your limitations? One, grumbling, complaining, complaining and grumbling to God, complaining and grumbling to others, or complaining and grumbling about others. What that shows, and you might not, this might not be your driving intentional motivation and grumbling, but this is what's at the bottom of your heart. This is what is proven to be true in grumbling. What you're doing in that act is you are believing that God is getting it wrong and you know better. You are believing that God's wisdom is not all it's cracked up to be, and you think that you know better and that he's getting it wrong. That is what grumbling shows. That's what happens when we don't accept the limits that God puts on us. The other other evidence that, that you're not accepting limitations is this. 
burnout. Burnout shows that you're pushing against your limits rather than accepting them. You are trying to seize success and importance at the cost of your sanity and at the cost of your health. Grumbling burnout shows that you are not accepting your limitations. It shows instead that you're trying to be what only God can be. All-knowing, all-powerful, all-sovereign. So stop trying to do the impossible. You are not God. You are limited. So then, just let God make the decision about how much to give you. If you're supposed to get more, let God do it. For now, just do the clear and basic things that he has asked you to do and be okay with things not being as perfect, not being as ideal, not being as grand as you want them to be. See, John the Baptist, he understood this. And that's why when he loses his spotlight, when he loses his crowd, when he loses his platform, when he's no longer important, he doesn't defend himself, he doesn't become jealous, he doesn't lose the will to live, he doesn't plan a counter-response, he accepts his limitations. It's not in his control and he doesn't need any credit. So the secret to being content is to know and accept your limits, okay? You are not God. We cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to us from heaven above. But listen, God's will behind us accepting our limitations is not just to be less stressed people, okay? Knowing and accepting limitations is supposed to move us into stage two. It's supposed to free us to then know and accept our purpose, okay? If it's not about me, okay, accepting those limitations, it should catapult us to knowing and accepting our purpose. Look at verse 28. John continues and he says this, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John is fine watching his influence dwindle because he understands that his Life, his existence, it's not about him. His life is not about him. It's about Christ. He exists to serve the purpose of pointing people to Jesus. John is just a billboard that redirects all eyes to Jesus. His life is spent making Jesus unforgettable and then die and be forgotten. That is John's purpose. To make his life all about Jesus, not him. And now John gives an illustration that gets this point across. He says this, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So in this illustration, John the Baptist sees himself as the best man at a Judean wedding. And in this culture, the best man's job was to make sure the ceremony proceeded without any problems. 
So John is saying the purpose in his existence is to initiate this marriage between Christ and his people. That's, that's what John is doing. That's his job as the forerunner, to initiate the great wedding between God and his people. And that's why he says he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. When he hears the, the groom say, I do, best man's job is complete. He has completed his purpose. And there is additional evidence, actually, in ancient cultures that suggests that if the groom never showed up, which might happen from time to time, uh, the bride could be given to, uh, to another, another man there, but never the best man. That would be completely culturally inappropriate. So John is using a very fitting analogy, analogy here. He is saying he would be the last person to step into Jesus' spotlight. He'd be the last person to try to vie for what is Christ's alone. So John, the best man, has initiated the wedding between the groom and the bride. He has done his part. So he says, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now again, do you know what this means? It means he has served his purpose. The spotlight is now officially redirected onto Jesus, and it will intensify, and it will grow on Jesus, and it will fade on John. And he is pleased about that. Now, why is that? Why is John okay with that occurring? Him becoming obscure? Because he knows that that is his purpose in existence. (laughs) To live in such a way so Jesus is remembered even if he is forgotten. Now, John's role, he's the best man. He's... Uh, inserted into history at this point to bridge the gap between two eras to, to prepare people for the Christ. None of us are John, John. That's not any of our purpose exactly, right? But this conversation is recorded for our benefit. Therefore, it's for our instruction. So what does this mean for you and I? This means the purpose of my existence and of your existence is to point people to Jesus and then just be forgotten and be okay with it. As long as Jesus is remembered, even if I'm not, then my joy is complete because my purpose is fulfilled. Said another way, I am put here on this earth with all my talents, with all my abilities, with all my resources, not to live for myself, not to increase myself, not to extend my legacy and be remembered, but so that Jesus' legacy is extended and that Jesus' name is remembered. Now look, this is really hard. If you actually embrace this, it would change everything. It would be a huge shift in our life because we've been trained in our culture to think the exact opposite of this to live for our sake, to live for ourself. Our individualism is so extreme that we think our jobs are about our happiness. We think our relationships are about our happiness. We think our kids are about our happiness. We think our money is about our happiness. Now think about this. Every Disney movie that you and I have ever watched growing up has the same message in it, which is follow your heart in order to be happy. And if there's anything that denies that, it's wrong. Or think about this, just cultural evidences that this is the case. We no longer have heroes in our culture. 
That's a former thing. We don't celebrate heroes, we celebrate celebrities. We have celebrities now, not heroes. And why is that? It's because we elevate people not on the basis of the virtue of self-denial, but on the pursuit of self-fulfillment. It's ingrained in us from the beginning that we are to live for ourselves and that that is the right path, the right pursuit in life. But if you were to ask John the Baptist, he would say that our jobs and our relationship and our kids and our money, anything that you have that is yours is not about making you happy, but about making others happy in Jesus. Our lives are not for ourselves. But I do want to spend a minute or two also telling you this, to persuade you of this, that you are actually going to be most happy. The greatest measure of success, the greatest measure of happiness in your life is going to come through self-denial, not through self-realization. Okay? Like I said last week, psychology is now finally catching up with the Bible. And the current narrative of self-realization, it has not made us happier, it has made us less happy. We are more anxious, more sleepless, more confused, more medicated, more suicidal than ever before. Why is that, though? Why is that? I think Ecclesiastes 3 offers one answer. Just one answer to a big question. But I want to go there and I want to tell you this. It says this. He has made, God has made everything beautiful in its time. And what that means is that God brings things to their appointed end in a way that's coherent and makes sense uh, and is, is in balance. Meaning one, one thing that could be done today, God has a plan for that thing 50, 100, 200 years from now. God makes everything beautiful in its time. Okay? Then it says this. Also, though, okay, at the same time, he has put eternity into man's heart. So what that means is that we long to see how things play out on a grander scale, don't we? We have this sense, this intuition that the things that we do now are seeds that will blossom, maybe even generations in the future. We have the sense that there's a greater wholeness, a greater narrative of things that we are just contributing to. Okay, he has put eternity in our hearts. But also continue on in Ecclesiastes, and it finishes the verse saying this, Yet God has put eternity into finite, mortal man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Meaning, this longing in our hearts of finite, mortal man's heart we won't see that longing realized in our lifetime because we'll, we will die. <laughs> we will be forgotten. We will not find out what God has done from beginning to end, that God's ability to make everything beautiful in its time. We are not necessarily going to be witnesses to that because we are finite people. Now, there's a lot of things uh, that can be said that, about that, like why does God do this? That's a different conversation. But what this teaching shows us is this. Okay, tell me this is not the case. We long to contribute to something greater than ourselves. We long to participate in something bigger than ourselves. We want the assurance that we are investing ourselves in something that is actually worthwhile. So now, what does Alexander the Great, the Rockefellers, Elvis, and the Beatles all have in common. 
They were all great. And they all died. Not all the Beatles, not yet. But it'll happen. And in some way, their legacy does live on. But they're mostly forgotten. Even the most famous and powerful and wealthy and influential people eventually become irrelevant. This is the path of every one of us to die and to be forgotten. So the question, friends, to ask yourself is not, will I be remembered? The question rather is, what is worth contributing to? What can I invest myself in that will outlive me and be bigger than me? There is nothing more significant than what affects eternity. I will die and be forgotten, and so will you, but guess what? (laughs) This timeline, our future, will come to an end at some point, and everything will become irrelevant. The only thing that remains relevant is what lasts into eternity, forever and ever. There is nothing more significant to live for than that. So do you want to contribute to something bigger than yourself? Contribute to people knowing and loving Jesus, because that legacy is immortal, and every other endeavor will fade. In other words, self-denial for the sake of something greater than yourself brings a deeper and lasting happiness than self-realization and self-importance. And there is no truer or felt happiness than in the self-denial that is for the sake of Christ and his glory and his honor and his name. Live for that and you will not regret it. And so when you read that Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, or whoever loses his life will save it, or the parable that we read earlier from Ben, when you read that, it says, we are unworthy servants, so we have only done our duty. That there is not the path to misery. Those, that, that, that summon, that's the path to happiness. But strangely, it's not through self-realization, it's through self-denial. And so this is why it makes sense when John declares, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. If it's inevitable, if it's true that I'm going to die and be forgotten and so will you, then to contribute to the elevation of Jesus so others know him now and forever is the greatest purpose there is. And this is the purpose that God is calling us to. This is John's, the Baptist's purpose, and he wants it to be our purpose. And so I just want to be clear. I just hope that, that, that this truth settles into our brains, then into our desires, then into our lifestyle, then into our character, then into our destiny. Your life and your existence, it's actually not for you. It's for Christ and others knowing him. But life is far less regrettable that way. Now again, we've been conditioned and trained for a really long time to be the exact opposite. And so something radical has to occur for us to get on board with this, to, to say, yes, I'm going to accept my limitations and I'm going to accept this purpose. Something groundbreaking must happen. Do you know what will transform the most self-centered, selfish person into a giving, selfless person? It's falling in love. Getting married, for example, is a call to die to self, but it's way easier to do when you love that person. Having kids is definitely a call to die to yourself, but it's easy to do when you love those kids. 
The only way to embrace your limitations and your purpose is if you know and love the groom. That's the third way we know the secret to contentment. Know the groom. So in John's analogy, who's the groom? Jesus is the groom. He is the groom that we must come to know and love. Now, when I say groom, I want you to think this, the ultimate love, the greatest love of all loves. Revelation 21 even depicts the day when Jesus returns as a great wedding. When heaven and earth are united and everything fades and it's just him and us, that is captured and depicted as a great wedding day. All of history, all of life is pointing to that day, which means every relationship, every romance, every, all affection. It's just a sign that points to him. He is the greatest of all loves. All other relationships and love stories is a shadow of this ultimate and final one in Jesus. He is the romance and love your heart was made for. And so, know and love your groom. What's so incredible about Jesus that would sweep you off your feet. What's so amazing about him? And that's where we need to read verses 31 to 35. And as I read it, I want you to notice that the point of these verses is that Jesus has come to us with his secret knowledge of the Father. He has come to us to show us what only he knows, which is what the Father is like. And in these verses, you'll see too that the Father knows the Son and loves the Son, and cherishes the Son, and validates and approves of the Son. So Jesus is coming to us so that we can have relationship with Him. Is Jesus inviting us into this abundant, Trinitarian, over-the-top love relationship? Let me read verses 31 through 35. Here's who Jesus is. Here's your groom. He comes from above all, and he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. What this means is when we give our hearts to Jesus, he gives God's heart to us. That is why you must know this groom. Because he, when you unite yourself to him, he becomes the bridge, the pathway to the most abundant and ecstasy-filled form of love, which is to be reconciled and walk with your creator who has made himself known in Jesus. The only way that you're going to accept these limitations and cease living for yourself and begin living for God's purpose for you is to fall in love with the groom. And so this is your groom. He's come for you to invite you into the most abundant love relationship that there is. And when you get there, when you begin to fall, when you begin to get wooed by Jesus, decreasing so that he might increase, living for his sake and not our sake, that becomes easier and easier. So we've titled this entire study in the book of John as living in the truth and truly living. Living in the truth and truly living. And do you know why that's the case? 
Because over and over in the book of John, we're told the same thing. Like this in verse 33, where it says, receive, receive his testimony. Set your seal to this, that God is true. In verse 36, it says, believe in the Son and obey the Son. Over and over, we're told to believe and obey and trust and abide, all these different ways, all these different summonings, callings, commands. What John wants to show us, the whole purpose of his book is that the fulfilling life, the abundant life, is the life that accepts the truth. Fullness of life is strangely not through self-realization, but through self-denial. So if you want a life well-lived, it's time to accept your limitations and this purpose and know the great love that your heart was destined for. So if you're here as a seeker, maybe you're here and you have questions about Christianity, questions about the claim of Jesus, you today have a choice. Seriously, you have a choice today. You can either continue to live for yourself and never arrive at a place of contentment. And like verse 36 says, remain under the wrath of God. Or you can take his claims and his truths and embrace them and turn from living for yourself and believe in him. You know, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. For my yoke, it's easy. My burden, he says, it's light. So if you're here and you're seeking, just know this. Taking on Jesus as Lord, taking on his truth, taking on his wisdom, stepping into that in faith, taking on that burden, Jesus says, my burden is light, actually. And he says, you will find rest for your souls. You can truly live if today you decide to live in the truth. Now for you, fellow believer, limitations and purpose that we're talking about today, it will always feel like a chore. It will always feel like a duty, not a delight, if you don't know and love the groom. If being forgotten, not getting what you want, so Jesus is remembered and honored, if that sounds like a bad deal, it's time to remind your heart of who he really is. And so here's my question for you today. Are you walking with God in such a way that makes his love for you real and powerful? Are you walking with him deeply, you know? Are you really creating that space in your life so that you have unhurried, undistracted time with him? Because I'm telling you, you're not going to be in the center of God's will here unless you know and love your groom. Now, full disclaimer, that will cost you. It might cost you some sleep. It probably cost you some football. It'll cost you to make space in your life for unhurried, thoughtful time in his word and in prayer. But if you were ever, if you are ever going to get in on the secret of contentment, you must make the love of God and Jesus your lifeline. You must make it 
your source, that everything else comes from, that you live from. And then, guess what happens? Accepting limitations and living for this purpose, it becomes as easy as breathing. As easy as breathing. Living in the truth and truly living. That's what God wants us. That's what God wants for us. Let's pray. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.